you're listening to the PJ Pod, the podcast that keeps you one step ahead of developments in pharmacy, medicines, and the pharmaceutical sciences. This episode has been independently created by the Pharmaceutical Journal team and financially supported by Reckitt. Adana Antonia Keke was in her third year of a pharmacy degree at the University of Nottingham when she realised something was very wrong in the way that she was being taught. I was in a lecture and we were talking about asthma and we were talking about cyanosis. It's a medical condition and one of the signs that you see is the skin will turn blue in colour. And so I remember asking um, the lecturer in the lecture, you know, what would that look like for, for a black person? Um, I put my hand up to ask and he didn't seem to have a response to that. It seemed like he never thought about that in any part of you know his career. This she found to be extremely frustrating. After all, surely a lecturer should be able to describe the appearance of such an important sign in patients with skin tones other than white. It was annoying that I had to go away to do my own research. It was annoying that it seemed like he'd never thought about it because I had a case one time where my mum had some rash, um, which is something I'd learned previously, but I couldn't recognise it on her because I'd never seen it on that kind of skin tone before. It was only after she'd gone to the the GP and they told her what it was that I thought, oh, actually, oh, that's it. Um, but I should have been able to recognise it because I'd been taught it only a few months ago. I know as a university student, you should, you should do your own research anyway for, for things, but not for things that should have been there in the first place. It was these experiences and another later that year where a patient actor made derogatory comments about African countries during a practical exam that served as a trigger for her to stand up and push for change. So I went to the course director and I basically just said to her, you know, this is what happened, this can't run. And she was very receptive and we spoke about it. So she asked me for some suggestions and then we spoke about Um, more things that needed to be changed. So, for example, the curriculum in itself. This was the start of a radical project, giving students at the University of Nottingham the power to go through the whole curriculum of the pharmacy degree and suggest changes to make it more inclusive. But it shouldn't take a student to raise concerns about teaching of the pharmacy degree to elicit change. All pharmacy schools should be ensuring their curricula reflect the influence of ethnicity on the presentation of different diseases. After all, both the Pharmacy Schools Council and General Pharmacy School Council have committed to making pharmacy education more inclusive relatively recently. My name's Julia Robinson. I'm Clinical and Science Editor at the Pharmaceutical Journal, and I've spent the past few months investigating this issue and tracking the progress being made with the MPharm degree. The issue of the legacy of colonialism in universities has been in the headlines recently. Like the student protests last year at the statue of 19th century politician and businessman Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College in Cambridge. But this movement's not just about statues of historical figures. Many universities are also looking at decolonising how they teach in order to overturn power imbalances rooted in historic and institutional biases. These biases run along multiple different axes. Race, ethnicity, nationality, class, gender, sexual orientation and disability. And these are all reflected in the curriculum. And while inclusion and diversity agendas tend to be a very top-down endeavour from institutions, the decolonising agenda is much more about ground-up activism from those most affected. 
Which brings us back to the University of Nottingham and what Adana set out to do with her project. We had a couple of discussions about what we might want to do and how what might be possible. You know, from my perspective, I didn't really know that much about uh, decolonising the curriculum and things like that. And I, I knew it was an issue. I knew it was something we had to do. But it's one of those things and as an academic, you're kind of like, well, where do we start? That's the pharmacy course director at Nottingham, Helen Boardman, who Adana approached initially about her concerns and who encouraged her right from the beginning to lead this project into decolonising their pharmacy degree. They looked in detail at the syllabus and said, pretty much these things annoy us and you could do better with these things. Or why can't you also have this? Why don't you mention that? But they were really helpful because they were saying things to the staff like, please don't worry about offending us. Much better to say something. We'll correct you if that's not right, but don't ignore race as an issue. Try and explain to us why things might be different for different races and things like that. And where there is a difference, point it out and tell us about it. For some, decolonisation could be a controversial term. After all, activists in this area have been accused of trying to rewrite history or dumbing down critical thinking in universities. But Adana's aim was the exact opposite. She wanted her decolonisation project to add vital context to the learning materials on the curriculum and enable teachers and students to question any unconscious biases they may have had. I think, for me, um, it means basically turning the curriculum on its head and questioning why things are. People become very comfortable with things and I'm not a comfortable person. I like to question things and know why something is the case. In terms of pharmacy, I'm going into the workforce, I'm going to be meeting so many different patients from so many different backgrounds. I don't want to be on the ward not knowing what I should know because I wasn't taught it. It doesn't look well for me, it doesn't look well for the university, it doesn't look well for anyone. In the past, the curriculum taught across UK universities has reflected a one-size-fits-all approach. Flick through any dermatology textbook, for example, and it's likely that over 90% of the images and patient cases will feature signs and symptoms as seen on white skin, not fitting with the diversity encountered in practice in modern-day Britain. For example, as highlighted by Adana, students studying medicine and pharmacy may not be taught practically to detect clinical signs such as anemia and cyanosis in black and minority ethnic patients. Melanomas can be harder to detect on darker skin tones, so further teaching aids may be needed to illustrate this diagnostic point to ensure that healthcare professionals are able to identify the signs. Also, certain laboratory tests, such as renal function, have different normal reference ranges in certain ethnic groups. A failure to understand these differences could mean patients are told their results are abnormal when they're in fact healthy, and vice versa. When Adana and Helen and a group of eight other students first sat down together, they began by each taking charge of certain modules in the course and set about finding the gaps in relation to racial inclusion. They found that the gaps largely belonged to four themes. The lack of representation of conditions as seen on black skin, less representation of black healthcare professionals, the need to be more specific in identifying race as a risk factor in some diseases and minimal expansion of statistics about conditions predominantly affecting black people. So, for example, if we're talking about pregnancy, they're not telling us that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. First of all, why is that the case? And second of all, why aren't we being taught that to prevent it from happening? 
After tirelessly combing through each of the modules, the group highlighted each of the areas requiring attention, providing all the links, pitches and missing statistics they believed needed to be deployed within the teaching materials. The document was then emailed to staff members just in time for the start of the following academic session. They looked at every module and they said, these things can be fixed. And they didn't just say, please fix this. They also said, here's where you can get a good example of that. Or here's an example of something you should talk about in this area. So, you know, when we're talking about maternity services and pregnancy, please, can you talk about the fact that it's not equal? and that black women are often not listened to properly during maternity services and can we make sure that people are aware of that. So, you know, I knew that it was different. You know, if you have a black patient, I know you have to use a different equation, but I didn't know why. And actually it's really interesting. And I, I, why have I never asked that question? One staff member was reluctant to take on the suggestions, however, and described the group's response and work as reactionary to what was going on globally with tackling racial inequality rather than something that needed to happen at that university. But for most, Adana's actions were the wake-up call that they needed. I think it was more of a, how do we do it amongst most of the staff, rather than a lack of willingness or a lack of awareness that they needed to do something. It was more, what really is decolonising the curriculum and how does that affect us and what can we do? You know, because we want to do it in a positive way and we want to support our students so I think it was really useful, all the conversations I had initially with Adana and then with the wider group about what they wanted to do and what, what meant a lot to them. But was Nottingham alone in needing to look at the inclusivity of their syllabus? Or was this problem more systemic? I don't think it's better or worse. I think, though, what might be worse is different universities' perception to it. So, for example, when I went to my university, they were willing to, to change, but some other students have not had that kind of response I think it's a systemic problem in, in HE, across HE. So we've now got a decolonising curriculum programme at Nottingham Uni, and I suspect every other university has something similar. I think it's just that people have not put any thought to it. And they're just like, well, this is how healthcare works. So I think it's more that now that we know about it, it's like, gosh, why, why have we not done something about this before? So what are universities across the UK doing about it, if anything? Being scrupulous journalists, we submitted a freedom of information request to all UK pharmacy schools. Of the 31 schools in the UK, we received responses from 28. Two couldn't provide any information. Two didn't explicitly say they were committed to decolonisation, but did say they had a programme to review their curriculum for equality, diversity and inclusion. And 24 said they were committed to decolonising their pharmacy curriculum. For example, some schools explained how they had incorporated additional learning on health inequalities, race and cultural competence, as well as the dermatological challenges of diagnosis in black and brown skin. And case studies had been revised to better reflect the diversity of the UK patient population and now encouraged discussions about how the health beliefs of different ethnic groups should be considered. So there's clearly positive changes happening across pharmacy schools. But this is just the start of the process for many. To get a wider perspective of what decolonisation means within the context of the healthcare sciences and where it might be heading, I spoke to Vinnie Lander, Professor of Race and Education and the Director of the Centre for Race, Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. I think the first thing to remember is that science isn't neutral. And I think what we need is a race-cognizant education 
within and outside the sciences? Why is it that 38 100,000 black women die in childbirth? You know, they are five times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts, and Asian women twice as likely. And that was highlighted in the Embrace report in 2019. Is their treatment of these black and Asian women, is it equitable? And the report actually noted that they were given different treatment options from their white counterparts for the same conditions. And so, you know, you have to think, what stereotypes prevailed in the minds of these healthcare practitioners to treat them so differently? Vinnie gave me loads of other examples to illustrate why decolonisation of our healthcare science degrees is so crucial. For example, in 2018, 4.5% of medical textbooks featured images of skin conditions on black and brown skin. And also, pulse oximeters actually overestimate oxygen levels in dark-skinned people by around 7%. But most poignantly, she shared an experience she herself had just weeks ago when she visited her GP practice. I went for a pre-diabetic blood test. And as the practice nurse took my blood sample, because I didn't want to look at what was happening, I asked her, why am I having this test? And she said that in the past, one of my tests had indicated a high blood sugar reading. And so they were keeping an eye on it. Um, And then I asked, why would my blood sugar levels be high? And she, she said, well, it's to do with your lifestyle. And I thought, I'm not overweight. I exercise regularly. I have very low sugar diet. And I said to her, could this be related to my ethnicity as a, as a female of Indian origin? And quickly she came back, she said, no, 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 it's to do with your lifestyle. And in that moment, what I sensed was that she was quite wary of going down the race route. She hadn't been trained, she wasn't conversant in having that conversation with me. So I think we need to educate scientists healthcare professionals to be race cognizant and to develop their racial literacy. As Adana says in the podcast, um, she talks about tutors saying, well, I never thought about that. I never thought about how a cyanosis would present itself on black skin. Well, that's because white is seen as neutral, but we're all racialized beings and we need to know how particularly because it's a matter of life and death in the health professions, how these conditions, different conditions, present themselves in people of different ethnicities. So while the results from my FOI were encouraging and showed that schools of pharmacy are taking action to cultivate positive change, on speaking to Vinnie, I came to understand that all too often progress in this area is still largely dependent on the goodwill of black and brown members of staff or students to affect that change. But this, she said, was effectively a cultural taxation on black and brown people. Adana talks about working with her colleagues to change the pharmacy curriculum. But why was it her, as a student of colour, who had to bring about that change? Why was it that group of students who were actually providing the resources and the links um, for their tutors? That's very much relying on them to do the hard yards, uh, what they need to do to develop their own racial literacy and and develop their racial cognizance is to do the work themselves. We have to stop relying on black and brown people to always do the work for us. 
This raises the question of whether it's enough to decolonise the curriculum, or whether we need to go one step further and ensure that the education system is actively anti-racist. Is there even a difference between the two? For Vinnie, it comes down to everyone, but particularly white people, becoming more racially literate and ultimately getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. So anti-racist education is actually based on understanding racism, not just your everyday expressions of racism like name-calling or trolling on Twitter. Anti-racist education is based on understanding racism as structural, as a historical phenomenon, as well as, of course, individual and um, interpersonal. In the example for, um, from Nottingham University School of Pharmacy, tutors were commenting about, well, we've never thought about race or we've never thought about putting that into the curriculum. Do they just take that content and deliver it? Or is there some thought about, well, why was it never there in the first place? What gave rise to the fact that it was never there in the first place? Why is it that I didn't think about including it? That's the bit that has to be unpacked. So I would say pharmacy needs to do more to educate their tutors to become more racially literate. Anti-racist education would examine why the staff never asked those questions about race. Why weren't they race cognizant? Um, what is it in their upbringing? What was it in their socialisation? What was it in their previous education that led them to that place? Um, so we need anti-racist education to develop that understanding about how race and racism works. And that's an uncomfortable journey to become racially literate, particularly for people racialized as white, because it engenders feelings of guilt, anger, defensiveness, because it really shakes their world, I suppose, is the best way of putting it, and, and the way that they've always understood the world. After making significant strides at Nottingham, Adana is keen to maintain momentum to ensure that decolonisation remains at the top of the agenda. But the work she initiated isn't just something that, in time, will increase the quality of education or, ultimately, patient care. It's also had a huge impact on students' sense of belonging. I think the biggest change for me, which is something really important, is just the environment. It's a lot better. I can see that everyone is genuinely trying. Everyone is listening. Everyone is trying. I think for me, that's the biggest change. And I think that's what I was trying to get in the first place. It's not enough to see a problem and just go, oh, I don't know what that is, but just keep moving. You need to question it. Even if no one listens, you still need to question it. So, yeah. It should never be a case of just finding a problem and sitting with it. You need to, even if you don't know the solution, go to someone that, that has the solution for it. This is just the start of the conversation that's needed in pharmacy. Decolonisation in academia is a relatively new concept and it's not one size fits all. The changes needed in degrees like history and politics aren't the same that are needed in medicine and pharmacy. And this isn't about starting all over again. Pharmacy schools can't rewrite their degrees from scratch. But it's worth remembering that UK pharmacists don't practice in a white monoculture. And yet elements of the curriculum currently don't prepare young pharmacists sufficiently for delivering care to patients in modern Britain. We'd love to hear your opinions about this or any of our podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, tweet us using the hashtag PJPod. 
This episode was produced by Jeff Marsh and presented by me, Julia Robinson. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to an episode of the PJ Pod, created by the team behind the Pharmaceutical Journal. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to us using your favourite podcast app if you're liking what you hear. Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Reckit. We've also developed editorially independent resources to help pharmacists recognise and treat common conditions in skin of colour. Check out the links in the show notes to find out more.